welcome back to the Colin Cadmus podcast. This is episode number eight. And today I have with me one of my favorite sales leaders and authors. He's been selling something to someone his entire life. He's been teaching and coaching salespeople for almost 20 years. He's the founder and president of A Sales Guy Incorporated and the author of Gap Selling. But you know him best as Keenan, the man who needs only one name. Keenan, man, thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to, to chat. I got you. I'm looking forward to it. Likewise, we've we've interacted a handful of times, um, but but never really face to face conversation. So um, the the format for season one is success stories, right? So I'm reaching out to people who have enormous success, mostly related to sales. I've made some exceptions. There's some some cool stuff coming up in this season, but uh, I want to hear your backstory, man. Like I, I I've read the book obviously many times. Um, but I think hearing it from you is a little bit different. And so I'm curious to dive into it. And I think a good place to start is, and, and I always love asking this, like, do you remember, cause I know you write in your bio that you've been selling something to someone forever. Do you remember the first sale you closed? So, yeah, I, I yeah, it's probably the first, I talk about this often, let me phrase, I talked about it on my LinkedIn profile and to the chagrin of many people, but I think the real first you know, sale I made, difficult, measurable sale was to get my mom to can let me hang Playboy pictures on my walls when I was <laughs> 10 or 11 years old. I think I was 11 years old. So look at you, look, you're turning red. It's funny. It's funny to be you when you're turning red. Um, yeah, I think that was the first one. And, and I, I use that because look, it was probably 1979, 1979, probably it was 11 or 12, somewhere in there. Um, and um, my, cousin, my oldest cousin, my dad was a big family, seven kids in Boston. So six kids. It's a fairly big family. So my oldest cousin, Timmy had this really dope ass room. Like it was, again, it was right in the height of the disco era. And so we went to his house one, you know, one day this summer, whatever. And he showed, he was showing up his room and he had like blue, you know, those blue black lights that made everything glow. And he had yeah, black yeah. Light posters and he had a disco light. And I mean, it was, the, I was like, and now thinking he's, I think he's eight years older than me, a seven. So he's like 18 or 19 and I'm like 11 or 12. I'm like, oh, I want that. So I started asking for all that stuff for Christmas. And I have no idea how I got it in my head that I need Playboy pictures on the wall. But again, this is, you know, it's an interesting time, right? It's 1978, yeah, yeah. right? So I convinced my mom to do that. And people ask, well, how was that a sale? If you don't think that's a sale, then you don't understand sales. And so, yeah, so that was really the first time I knew that I had the power to influence people. And that's what selling is. I love that. Yeah, for me, it was shoveling driveways, shoveling the snow. At least it's the first time I remember realizing that I could use my words along with a service or product, right? Mm -hmm. But I could get someone to just give me money. And I remember in, in New Jersey, like when, when you'd have a snow day, we'd all yep. get really excited. All the kids would get excited for the day off of school. Yeah. That wasn't the reason I was excited. I saw money on those yep. driveways, you know, yep. and, and I wanted to be the first one out there. And, and it was competitive in my neighborhood. And I got beat up once by the older kids who had snow blowers, and I had my shovel and my money flew all over the snow and, and I'll never forget it. But, uh, but yeah, I yep. love those stories. Cause it, it, it's, I don't think many people connect the dots to like, there probably is that story for someone, for everyone who's in sales. Yep. And they may not even realize that it kind of like, you know, a series of those events eventually leads you to, to where we're at, I guess. Oh, I have a million of them as a kid. That was just the first one. And yes, I used to do the same thing. My brother and I, we get, we get like, we totally grossly undercharged. We got like 10 or 20 bucks a driveway. And yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and twenty bucks was was big. We were like, yeah. I can't believe I just got twenty bucks. Meanwhile, you're out here for five hours yeah. shoveling yeah. everything, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And and somehow like we still had energy to go do five more and six more and 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 like I remember the blizzard of I think it was 1997 in New Jersey. The snow was taller than us, man, and we made so much money. It was great, but uh, yeah, like I say, we got put out of business by the older kids who later got access to their parents' snowblowers, and <laughs> it was it was over for us, man. <laughs> so what about like what about sales kept you in it right like when, when, when you first started or, or let's talk about like what was the first role professional role that you got into and then we can dive into that what kept you in it professional role uh i guess it's funny i what kept me in well you gotta understand for me it was just a natural thing i don't even think i realized what i was doing i think you know we have a tendency to be drawn to the things we're good at right so yep. i was a good athlete <laughs> Um, I was, I've always been a good talker, articulate, big, per, always had a big personality. Always was a love, hate guy. You know, either people at school loved me or hated me. Oh, well. So you were outgoing as a kid too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 From, yeah. Some, some people come out of their shells later. Like I wouldn't also be surprised if you said you were super quiet as a kid. You never know. No, I was, I was, I was, no, I was never super quiet. There was a, certainly a point in time where I was easily embarrassed. So even though I was a loud kid and got in trouble in school, in public and stuff, I get embarrassed. And, and I watched my brother one day, who was younger than me, actually, in this public setting, just, I don't know what he was doing, but he got everybody's attention. I remember my parents saying, look, at, he can make friends with everybody. Look at him. Everybody's looking at him. And I was like, well, fuck him. I could do that, too. And I remember consciously saying, I'm going to do that. But other than that, so that's when I stopped worrying about what people thought. But I've always been pretty gregarious and outgoing. Um, so, you know, look, if you're a big reader and you're a really good writer and you're sort of a, I don't say nerdy, that's not the right word, but if you're just sort of a kid who loves to read and data, you find yourself at the library a lot. You know, you find yourself doing shit that gels with you. Well, because I played sports, because I was outgoing, had a big mouth, wasn't afraid, I was always in positions to something that was close to selling, had a paper route, shovel driveways. Um, when I was 16, I met some guy on the side of the street who had a little bucket of flowers and he wore a tuxedo and a little you know, a little bow tie. And he tried to convince people walking by to buy flowers. Like, I'll do that. That's a, that's a cool job rather than working for some asshole in a restaurant. So I spent a whole summer working like three hours a day trying to get guys to buy, you know, their girlfriend's flowers. Um, so it just, that's how everybody knew me. Right. And so my first, first job, I was in South beach, Miami. I told the story a lot. I was in South beach, Miami. I was modeling. I, you know, I've been trying to kind of get to the next level. I mean, it, it sounds corny, but when you get into it and you start making money at it, it's very similar to like baseball or professional sport. There are small markets and you're sort of a nobody and you try to build your book and, you know, you try to get bigger names. It's like sports. Right. You know what I'm saying? You try to get to the major leagues, which was basically New York and Milan. Just below that is um, uh, South Beach, Miami in the winter. That's sort of like, think of that as like AAA or something, you know what I'm saying? Where a lot of big names come. But so I was there trying to poke through and a buddy of mine called me from back in Denver. He's like, dude, you need to come home. Um, I got a job for you. Um, it's a sales job. You can make $50,000 a year. And this is in 1996. Well, wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah. It was a thousand bucks a week. I was yeah. doing the math. It was like a thousand a week. Like, I started I like, in 08 at 40 K. So yeah. that's an incredible money in the 90s. Yeah. That was OTE though. It was OTE, but still, okay. I was like, still, still. In yeah. my little head, I was like, I don't spend a thousand dollars a month, never mind a thousand dollars a week. So, uh, and then I also did the math. I was like, okay, if I 
become a famous model, like famous, famous. I might make four or 500 as a man, as a woman, it was a different story. They can make millions, but as men, sure. it was basically Tyson Beckford. And that was pretty much it that I could name. There's a couple of guys who did a lot of the, um, the Calvin Klein stuff, um, but really no top name male model. So I was like, maybe a half a million. I was like, if I'm really good, I can get into the, into the corporate world and in five, six, seven years be making a half million dollars and do that the rest of my life. Right. So when and I cross- the lifespan of modeling is what, four or five years? For men, it can be longer, but not, it's like I was 27. Men can go into their mid to late thirties, but it's, I just, I just saw, and look, yeah. I wasn't Tyson Beckford. You know what I'm saying? So I quickly yeah. knew yeah. I'm out. I mean, were I love it. Were you passionate about modeling? Like, ah, was that something ah, you were into or it was just an opportunity? It was, it was an opportunity. It was, it was a lifestyle, huge yeah. lifestyle, great lifestyle. <laughs> you know, my, my first CEO, Wiley Cirilli, he's actually on episode number two. Um, same story. He, model, he did Calvin Klein underwear modeling to, you know, pay the bills and stuff. But yeah, yeah. it was never a passion. It was just, uh, just something he did to get by. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it's 22 as a sales guy. I love meritocracy and I love competition. Modeling wasn't like that. It was too subjective. Like I literally, I, I knew I was probably never going to go anywhere because I knew I was, I was trying to get in with Irene Marie, big, I, I think she's still big now, big agency down there. And I had just met with their booking agent. And he's like, look, I love your look and all this, but you're a little late into the season. Don't worry. That means Had you gotten here a little early. I would have taken you, but I'll never forget. So he goes, but there were just, I have too many people of color on the wall right now. This is before the internet. So they, wow. there's a wall full of cards is what they called it on yeah. the wall. Yeah. And you, they, people, you know, so I remember leaving there and then I got back to my, to where I was staying and, and it was a place where a whole bunch of us models stayed. And one of the other models was like, Oh my God, the photographer, and she was already crushing it. And she goes, Oh, I just sh the shoot today. And some guy was talking about you. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, I knew it was you because he said something, but he said he saw you riding your bike and he said he really wants to shoot. He said, you got one of the best looks ever. And I'm like, so I got this one guy saying he wants to shoot and they want to use me. And I got an amazing look. And I got another person saying, we're not interested. Yep. And right then and there, I knew that's not how I operate. Like yeah. if I'm the best quarterback, I start. I don't like you just, you think one thing, you think another, I just too fucking all over the place. So anyways, yeah. I was out and I went back. My buddy got me a job selling at the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, pitching chamber memberships to anybody that would buy one. That was my first job. And so you go to this job, you're, you're getting more money. <clears throat> what was the immediate reaction? Like that's a big change of lifestyle, right? Living, living like a model, assuming you're making money and you can pay your bills. is a good, relatively decent lifestyle, right? Yeah. I know there's a lot of work to it. I, I dated a model once and it's actually a lot more work than people realize, but, um, but it's a good life, right? You're kind of working your own hours, you know, most of them traveling around quite a bit and stuff. Yeah. What was that adjustment like for you? That must've been like a little bit of a shock to walk in and have to kind of be there every day and grind or did nah, it just I, I liked feel natural? It. I liked it. It was something to do. I liked the last, I, I, you know, modeling, you don't know what to count on. I look, I liked going in. I liked the people I worked with. Um, it was right downtown Denver. Again, it was really before the internet was there, but not really, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so it was still a time when, People would go out for drinks after dinner. I mean, after work, um, people talk to each other in the office, you know what I'm saying? So it was super social. So I loved it. Did you guys, did you have good training when you got into that? No like, how did you, how did you eventually get to this level? Was it another company where you got trained or you self-taught? Where did that evolution? Yeah. Again, it was, it was in my DNA. It just look, I, I, I would have training, nothing I really remember. And I would take stuff to wash. I would watch other people. I'd listen to what people did. I'd try it. That was stupid. That was really good. Or I'd pivot myself. I'm like, I'm doing this. This isn't making sense. Why don't I try this? Oh, that was a good idea. So I'm a lifetime learner. I'm open to all kinds of shit. And it just, 
developed over time. Yeah, it's I can relate to that. Like when I started in sales, luckily I had really good training, but I, I like to think that I would have been successful without it. It just would have taken longer because I think that it does come naturally to me. But I do think that to that point, and it's important to clarify for everyone listening, I think there are two types of people. I think there are people who can figure it out naturally. And those are the people who end up writing sales books and methodologies and things like that, because it just comes to us, right? Um, and I think we're cut from that same cloth. And then there's others who need to see that playbook. They need to read it, and then they can do just as well. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think some people are just naturals. And that's what I love about our line of work is like there, there is a natural skill to it. And the gift oh, yeah. of gab is, is not bullshit. Right. Like it's yep. real. Yep. Yep. No you question. Know? So as you moved on towards that, how did you eventually transition into SaaS? Were you were, or, or were you actually transitioned into SaaS or did that happen sort of as a consultant? Never really sold SaaS. And I think I, this whole idea that there's a SaaS salesperson or SaaS is a thing gets on my nerves. A sale like, is a sale. Yes, I just I just want to slap people around. It's like it's SaaS sales and SaaS this. Look, if you're a sales, a SaaS CRO, okay, there are some elements, or better yet, even a SaaS CEO, there are some elements to scaling that you need to take into consideration along, you know, um, the type of go-to-market you want to take. Do I want to just get a bunch of people and worry about churn later? Do I want to, you know, take fewer people on but keep them longer and stuff like that? Like there's business decisions that are relevant to SaaS or material to SaaS that makes sense. But as far as selling, selling SaaS or selling um, on-prem hardware or even on-prem software or selling medical devices, or it's all the fucking same. And it drives me insane when people want to have this whole SaaS conversation. Just stop. At a salesperson level and a sales manager, sales director level, it is no different. A sale is a sale. And yep. this idea that somehow because it's recurring revenue and sits in the cloud, somehow, just, just, you're just showing that you don't know what you talk, not you, just people yeah, are showing yeah. what they don't talk to when they start saying, well, let's talk about selling SaaS. I'm like, shut up. Yeah. At the leadership level, I could see, like you said, how it's, how it's different, right? Understanding the recurring model, understanding the pipeline and, and, and how to keep it predictable, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, at the sales level, like, yes, it's a benefit if you've sold SaaS before and you understand all that stuff, but I could also teach that to you in, you know, a week. Days. Right? Yes. Days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yep. exactly. Exactly. Uh, I actually had a cool reminder of that the other day. Um, I, I was just telling you before we started, I moved back from New York City to New Jersey. And so I bought a car again. Uh, and I am so fucking I, I can curse on here. It's my podcast. <laughs> I, I'm so happy that like I got sold by a tremendous, phenomenal salesperson. Yep. And I went to a couple different dealerships and like the first one, the guy barely showed me an attention, you know, next one I had, had an appointment to meet with this guy. And like the first one guy, like didn't, didn't even try. And I left, I'm like, I was expecting to be pushed. Like, that's what you expect from the car salesman. Right. As, as people say, but like this guy's like, yeah, go test drive, whatever you want. There's dealerships up and down the road. Come back if you want something. Um, and I kind of liked that at first cause he wasn't badgering me, but as I left, I realized, shit, I didn't make any progress there. You're right. I don't feel like I accomplished anything. I don't feel like I got any closer to buying a car and knowing what car I want. And then I realized that's his fault. Yes, it is. 100%. Right? I yep. realized that. I said at first I liked that he wasn't pushing me, but then I realized I came here to be sold because you, I need uh, a car and I don't know came, which one I want. You, not to be sold. You came to learn. Yes. Yes. True. 
True. Came to learn. And he I didn't came to learn anything. and to figure out like what yes. I want. Cause my yes. research online didn't get me there. I was too yes. confused on, do I want an SUV? Do I want a sports car? Do, what, what do I want? Right. Yes. So anyway, I go to the next dealership and this place, I, I had a, a model car that I wanted to test drive. I specifically asked them if they had it in stock, all that stuff. This guy's got it waxed, shined up at the front right as I pull in. He's ready for my arrival. He gives me a tour of the dealership, shows me some of the owner's collection, all this stuff, builds the rapport, takes me out for the drive, lets me open it up. We get back. He goes, you want to do it again? I'm like, yeah. And like this guy knew what he was doing. And now I will tell you, I had no intentions in buying this exact car because I wanted different features and options. I just wanted to drive it to see if I liked it. Um, but anyway, he sold me. And he, he, he had me convinced by the time I left there that like there was no reason for me to walk out of that place without a car. And uh, it's, an, it's a whole story for another podcast, but I was blown away. And I bring it up just because it, it's to your point, like I realized in hindsight, as I'm driving out of there, this guy just did every trick in the book that I teach people in SaaS, right? He just did it all. And it worked on me and I even know the tricks, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it worked because I shouldn't call them tricks because they're really not tricks. Really what he did is he helped me see what was right in front of me. And he helped me just make a, a, a relatively simple decision. And he found a price that worked for me, you know, and I did lowball the crap out of him, but uh, he took it. So. Well, that's on him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, he made a sale. If he had you, if he had you, he didn't need to take it. Yeah. Well, you know what? He probably made me feel like it's a low ball and, and, and I'm not sure that it necessarily was, you know, like it, it maybe it wasn't too bad for him. Um, you know, I, I think he knows what he's doing. So he was, he was a winner that day, but I feel like I did too. And that's a, that's a good sale. But uh Anyway, let's let's think about like your early sales career. You're you're on that sales floor. You're cranking away. Um, how how quickly did you rise to the top? Were you a top rep on on your team? Immediately, yeah, right away. Right away. Very first job. The first two jobs I had. So the first job I had when I came back from modeling the chamber, my buddy knew someone there, and he convinced them to hire me. Basically, sight unseen. I went and interviewed, and they were nervous, so they hired another guy with me. Okay. Within three months, that guy was gone. I was the top rep, rep set all kinds of records. There was another guy that had been there forever. Jeff, if you're listening, you fuck. You, you, <laughs> you, you just you hope you got out of your own way over your age over time because you're just an asshole then. I'm sure you're an asshole now. But uh, he got all mad at me and he couldn't stand me and, and he was a jerk. And then um, it didn't matter. I just crushed through it, set all kinds of records, you know, top months, top rep, you know, blah, 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 and had a blast. It was there one year. One year, crushed it. One someone I sold a membership to was super impressed. And so they turned around and they hired me. And well, I had to sell myself into that job, to be honest with you. So this was an IT consulting firm. I knew nothing about IT. We're coming up on Y2K. I didn't even had never even heard of Y2K. Well, literally the dinner that you had, well, in the old days, you'd have dinner with 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 candidates before they hired you. The old day was very different. You went out to dinner. Wait, they you want to explain what Y2K is for a lot of the youngins who yeah, probably okay. that yeah. went right over their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so back in Y2K, right from 1999 to 2000, there was a fear that at the time when they programmed all the computers, <coughs> excuse me, they did two dates for the year. So they didn't put 1995, 1996, they'd only put two dates, 96, 97, 1999. And they were afraid that the, the computers would lose their shit when it flipped to zero, zero, because they wouldn't know if it was 1900, 1800, 2000, et cetera. So there was tons of remediation. So consulting firms are making a lot of money running around, digging into the code 
and, and basically remediating these computer systems so that when the date flipped to 2000, they knew when it was and it didn't take everything down. There was all kinds of fears that electric grids were going to go down, blah, blah, blah. So this I is remember 19- that. I mean, you probably, you've got a few years on me. So you were a, a <laughs> bit older to understand what was going on then. I just remember thinking the world was going to end. And like people actually thought the world was going to end yep. when it turned the year 2000. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So I didn't even know what that was. So the word dinner, like, the, like, again, you young kids, back in the day when people, they hired account executives, especially for nice jobs. The last thing they did is they took you to dinner with a lot of the, the senior executives. And you had dinner and they saw how you acted and behaved and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me about Y2K. And I was like, Y2 what? Like, I didn't even know what the hell it was. And I still convinced them to hire me. But like the first job, they hired another girl with experience and hired her right next to me. And it's once again, three months in, she was gone. I was there a year in. I'm now the manager. 18 months in, I'm now a partner. I was three, three years. I almost be, actually was given my own branch. I'm glad I wasn't in hindsight. It was for the better. But um, like I crushed it there. So that's why I'm also not a big fan of people telling me about experience. Every time someone pitted me with someone against pitted some with experience against me, they lost. I always won. Experience, no experience, I always won. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I got my first two jobs. I love it. Yeah, experience in sales, I know it's a controversial opinion, but I don't actually think that it means very much uh, because I've hired plenty of people with the perfect resume, the president's clubs, this and that's, and then I've seen them just completely tank because sales is a game where you have to deliver every day, Yep. right? And, and I think the reality is that it's like a, it's like a sports career. Like you go through good seasons and bad seasons, your personal life 100% affects your performance, no matter how you want to look at it in sales. Cause it's too emotional. Mm-hmm. And like, so there's no guarantees. You could hire the best person. And usually, at least from my experience, I shouldn't say usually from my experience, when I took those risks and I convinced finance or whatever to give me that extra salary money to hire that person with that fancy resume, and all those connections in that Rolodex, they never worked out. Never. Yep. Never work out. Yep. You end up just burning a bunch of money and then it pisses the whole team off too. And time. Yeah. And time. Yeah. I learned that lesson a few times uh, at doctor.com. The first time I was VP of sales, I never ever went back to doing it. Um, And and yeah, yeah, I've seen it happen too many times. I think like the thing is success is contingent on so many different things in sales. It's not just you. It's you the timing, the product, the prospects, their timing, it all of these stars have to align for success to happen. And you could just as easily take a shitty sales rep, throw them somewhere else. They do great, vice versa. There's no guarantees. So that's why I love entry level. At least you know what you're getting and you're not overpaying for something that might not work. Um, All right. So let's talk about you started your business. So it sounds like the role you're just talking about is where you I guess, had your first leadership experience in terms yeah. of sales professionally. Did that come naturally to you as well? No. That, and I don't even still think it comes naturally. No. I have a knack to be able to, at least I'm told, to inspire people. Um, but when you have to do it day over day over day, um, you know, my own style for motivating myself and, and inspiring myself is, is pretty aggressive and so, and I have high expectations. And so I just took those same high expectations and threw them on the people that are working for me. And they just- It's intimidating. 
Oh, they just collapsed. Yeah. yeah. Either they collapsed or they were so angry because they were old. Most of the time they were older than me. And they were like, how dare does this young person tell me mm. how to do it or whatever. And, and I didn't know yeah. how to pick my battles. And so my first, it was, it was a rough go in the beginning. My manager had to come. I said, look, Keenan, you're going to have to change the way you do this. And yeah. But I was like, my job's to get shit done. And they're not getting shit done. And he's like, <laughs> the way you do this. So that one didn't come as smoothly. And I still don't think it's very smooth for me, to be honest with you. It's very, we're, we have a lot in common. Uh, I, I struggle with the same stuff. I'm very glad that uh, my first job out of college, I went as a manager at CVS pharmacy. Um, I like interned there and whatever the, it was 2008, the job recession. Right. Yeah. But, um, but they put me through a lot of management training and HR training over those four years. And I didn't realize at the time how valuable that would be for me mm -hmm. later. Um, but even with all of that, when I, I then left and started entry-level sales and then got into leadership. I had the same sit down with my boss, right? Where, where I had to be coached on like how to approach situations and, you know, how to essentially the same thing. And, and I remember what, what one of my problems was I would, I would sometimes let people have it through email or, or Slack early in my leadership career. And, and I learned, you know, it took me a little while to catch on to the fact that like, sometimes it's a hell of a lot easier to just go talk to somebody, but uh but yeah, I could see how working for you could be intimidating and, and even maybe nerve wracking for certain people because mm -hmm. uh, you're a big personality, right? And, and yeah. I would imagine if I was just getting to know you that I would expect that if I pissed you off, you'd blow up. I don't know if that's actually who you are, but no, I would expect I that. I'm not much of a, uh, I, I talk loud and I yell in conversation. That's why I think people would, per, would assume that. Yeah, yeah. With the exception of my kids, which I haven't figured that piece really I yell at my kids far more than I should, but they put me over the edge. But outside of yelling at my kids, I didn't yell at my marriage. I don't yell in relationships. I, I shouldn't say rarely. It takes a, if you get me to the point where I'm yelling at you out of anger. Yeah. You, <laughs> I love the way you say out of anger. Cause you're mostly always yelling, right? Yes. Yes. Out of <laughs> anger. If you get me to yell at you out of anger and you're a full grown adult, you have really fucked up. And it's, it's probably, and I think, I think, the reason I'm at that place from finally yelling out of anger is in my head, it's irreparable. Yeah, so fuck yeah. it. You're gonna, I'm laying out because I believe when you start yelling out of anger, you actually make it harder to fix the problem. You make it harder to resolve the issue. So I try, I don't call names and I don't yell. So if you're an employee and you do something really stupid, I'm, you know, we're going to have a conversation. I may be stern. I'm like, I'm not happy about this. And, and, you know, and there may be consequences, but I'm not going to yell and call you names or anything like that. HR appropriate or not isn't the point because I realize that once you do that, you're just making it harder to resolve the situation. Yeah. So I don't like to, to go into environments where I'm emotional and make it worse. The whole point is to resolve it and get change. So if you get me to the point where I'm yelling at you out of anger, I've already, in my head, I'm, I'm like, fuck them. I'm done. And then I go like literally like a floodgate. Fuck you. I'm done. Boom. And yeah. I'm laying into you and then get the fuck out. Yeah. When, um, when did you decide to, to build your own business? Like, did that just happen organically? Was it strategic? Kind of. I think it kind of similar happened, similar to how it sounds like it happened with you. Uh, I started writing a blog in 2009 and just did it for two years straight. I mean, I've told this story a thousand times, but I did it because um, my career went so quickly. I had a hard time competing on my resume because I had mm -hmm. so many, so few years experience compared to other people at my level. And so uh, I was like, screw it. If I blog about it every day, I could build a small audience, maybe, you know, a thousand or 2000 people. And then what year I, was this? 2009. Okay. So, so this is, cause it's really hard to get any sort of traction on a blog nowadays. 
um, unless you're on like medium or something, you were doing this on your own website. Yeah. And we were able to drive traffic to it. That's amazing. Oh, it's hard time. to do nowadays. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I was getting about 20,000 views a day or something. And, and, and that was a salesguide.com. It's the same. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, after two years of doing that, I got, um, you know, tremendous, People, when I, you know, I thought I had one or 2000 people and the idea was, okay, if I need a job, I'll write on my blog. Hey, everybody, I need a job, you know, and you've been following me and they'll get me a job. Yeah. Well, two years in, they started reaching out saying, Hey, do you do consulting? Hey, do you do consulting? Hey, do you do consulting? And so once I was like, okay. And then I got laid off because they laid off the whole North American sales team. Um, we got went through a merger. And so I had a choice. Do I write on my blog? Hey, I'm looking for a job and spend six, eight months trying to find a senior level executive sales position. Or do I write on my blog? I've just started consulting and spent six to eight months trying to build it. And it just seemed like the better choice to go the build route. And I, yeah. so I just said, screw it. I'll, sh- I'll give it a shot. So I called some of the people who reached out to me and said, we're looking for consulting help. And they booked me in. The rest was took care of itself. And so now it's been, it'll be 10 years this February. Wow. Congrats. That's awesome. Thank 10 you. years of not having a boss, huh? The client's my boss. Like, I, I want to go skiing after this today, so I can, but the client called and like, it's not as much freedom as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of both. You're right. Like, it, I think it depends what types of engagements you take on too. I think yeah. when you go into the deeper ones, that's where you're kind of, even though you may have set hours for the client, like if they call, you're going to go, right? And it happens for me every day. I'm supposed to work one day a week for a client. I deal with them every day, you know, because I want them to be happy. But uh, uh, yeah, it's still the nice thing for me, at least like after being shit canned a couple times, you know, just having bad luck. Uh, what's nice is that you can't really get fired from this. Yes. A client can drop you, but you're diversified, right? Yep. Your life doesn't come to a complete halt when that happens, if yes. that happens. Yes. And so that's just, it's just relaxing for me. The thing is, I'm curious what you think about this. I don't think I would have done this or enjoyed it without the remote element. Like, I don't think I would enjoy traveling around to go to a bunch of people, you know, cl- consulting clients uh, all the time throughout New York City. Like the reason the stars aligned for me on this is like, I wanted to get out of New York City already. I wanted to move back to New Jersey. Uh, like I hated the city. So when COVID happened and then I realized I could make money on my own, I'm like, well, this is kind of a chance for me to, to like build the life that I actually want, you know? Mm-hmm. And now I'm able to to do that. Although I miss going to the office and you know, there's, there's fun stuff to that too, but do I miss it every single day? Heck no. Mm-hmm. Like well, I, but how has your business oh. changed since remote? Like, uh, cause you were mostly in person, right? For your consulting before. Road. Yeah. Look, you know, I also have a team, right? So, um, I had, how many do you have? We, I just lost two salespeople, one to a terrible disease and someone just left, but, Gosh. uh, it was six of us and now we're back down to four. Um, but, um, the so hiring hiring um uh where can people apply or check out the jobs uh hit me up on hit me up on linkedin it's probably the best there's a there's a link and i don't know what off the top of my head brady does it sorry um so no for me look for the first nine years or eight and a half years whatever i was flying all over the world you know i mean i had clients in england and brazil and colombia and scotland and so i mean and, and then of course all over the united states so you know right before COVID, I'd flown 150 something thousand miles. You know, I've been, uh, you know, so. But you enjoyed I, that? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, I wouldn't like that. That would be too much for me. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it actually. It was, look, I, I, had, I had, oddly enough, I got divorced three months after 
separated and then divorced three months after I started my company. And so, you know, my, I had 50, 50 custody. So my kids would go with their mom and I built all my travel with the exception of international travel. I had to, we had to work together on that, but where I would leave the moment I dropped them off at school, I'd go straight to the airport and then I'd stay somewhere two nights, work with the client all day long and half the next day, get back on a flight and get right back to pick them up from school. You know, and I just did that for basically, you know, nine years. That's and rough. I love it because if I didn't do that, I would have been sitting at home by myself anyways, bored off my ass. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So it was actually really good for me at the time to, to have something to do and get up and, and not just sit in front of my computer all day long like this. So, I, you know, I liked it. Now that I've been doing this, though, I flew somewhere personally the other day and had a connecting flight. And I thought I was going to pull my hair out. I was like, oh, God, I do not like all of a sudden being yeah. on a plane wasn't much fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's it's like once you get used to this this life of like because it's incredible what it does to your lifestyle, your personal life, just the little things like the fact that after this call in between meetings, like I could change my laundry in the machine or, you know, I could, it's those little things that add up to like making your life so much more manageable and enjoyable. I'm going skiing. No, for real. Like when we're done here. I'm going to go ski the mountain close at three 30. I, I should have put my ski pants on now, but I didn't. So I'll be out the door by two 15. I'll be on the hill by two 30. They close at three 30. I'll get in, you know, four or five runs and be happy as a lark. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about the impact remote has had on on sales, right? Let's let's talk tactics. Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen in 2021. Obviously, last year everyone moved remote. It happened really quickly. People adjusted. They adapted. Uh, and now I think it's more about like thinking long term. And so we talked a little bit about this with Jason Lemkin, and and he shared an interesting thought that that he doesn't think. Um, that it's going back to full office, like that it ever will. I agree with uh, them. Yeah. If you're in commercial real estate, you're fucked. Yes. Yeah. I've been thinking about this for a while. If you're in commercial real estate, you are in a, you better figure out how you're going to pivot because it is not going to be the same. I know it's, it, it actually kind of felt good moving out of New York, knowing like that the landlords who ripped me off for so long were struggling a little bit. I hate to say that, but uh, I don't know. They had it coming to them all these years after screwing people. Eventually it happens, but yeah, <laughs> you know, but um, so, so what do you think is, is going to remain different, right? So we know that it's all different now, right? Cause everyone's remote. You're not having your morning rallies on the sales floor. All that sort of stuff is different. Does it stay that way? Do, do we get to a place where most companies are just all remote? Do you think that we get to a place where they're kind of half remote? They say, Hey, Mondays and Wednesdays, we're in the office. Like, what do you think happens or, or do we just not know? So I, I like to think that we, this is a, how do I want to say this? What I'd like to think is that for lack of a better term, market economics are going to dictate. And I don't mean market economics, like the market as a whole, you know, the economy. What I mean by that is, look, the reason that most people didn't work remote and you saw this was particularly in the, um, in the medical field is because people don't want to admit it, but the, if you ever follow, um, Jeffrey Moore and the whole, you know, um, uh, crossing the chasm. And, and when it comes to businesses, if you're early adopters, innovators, early adopters, uh, something and late adopters and then laggards and stuff like that. Right, right, right. What I, and it's been a while since I read it, but I don't recall much if he does talks about it, but he does. And I give him credit. If he doesn't, then I'll take credit. It doesn't really matter. I don't really think the majority of humans are really that innovative to be perfectly frank, nor do I think they're really early adopters. Most of us are just like things to stay the way they are and we accept things for where they are and you try to fuck with them and we get pissed off. Yeah. Okay. We just, 
Listen, the truth of the matter is most of us really are very terrible at looking around the corner. So what do I mean by this? The reason that there was some people starting to do this whole remote workforce, but most weren't because they would have told you all day long that people will screw off. They can't get anything done. We need the personal interaction. They had this little world built in their head and it didn't matter what you told them. They weren't going to change their minds. I was one of those people. There you go. Okay. So they were locked. They were just yeah. locked in their head. Okay. And I, we went full remote before this. I was like, what am I fucking doing? I don't believe that the value of remote was being capitalized. I believe that that viewpoint we had stunted our ability to step back and look, does it make sense? Is it, is it economically viable? Is it better for us? Is it better for the employee? Not yes or no either way, but step back and evaluate it. We weren't willing to evaluate. We just had our opinions and we drew a conclusion and we were done. Yeah. So now that we've done this, what I think it should do is it should have wiped away the preconceived bullshit notions. And so now what I think is going to happen, I think Lemkin's right. We're not going to go all the way back. We're not going to stay here. What I hope happens is people actually start allowing the, the economics of it, right? So it says, okay, does this person need to stay home? Does this person need to come into the office? What are we trying to get out of this? Where is it best for them? What's it best for our customers? Do we really need to spend an extra 100000 a month in, in um, office space? Do we need to spend the money on these on the furniture? Can we spend it somewhere else? What is the loss? Like they're literally actually going to come at it from a, um, an open mind and assess it and make the best business decision. I think that's what's going to happen. I hope it's what's going to happen because that wasn't what was happening before. People were just saying no, even though it could have been made a difference. Yeah, that seems like the most logical response because now we feel like we really have the option, right? Because you're not getting that resistance and those preconceived notions. And like, yeah, I definitely, and I'll tell you, I, I still have some of those concerns. Like, I don't know that it would be, or I'd even go on record saying it won't be as easy to hire a team of 10 or 20 salespeople and train them as fast as as I think it would be, or as it is under the roof of an office, yep. you know, doing that remotely, I honestly can't imagine it. Uh, I don't think I'd be excited to take on that challenge. Nope. Um, but what you can do now is expand that pool. So rather than all have to be within 20 miles of, 30 right. miles of the office, now I can expand that pool to the whole country. So the loss of trying to train them all in the front end could be gained by 10 X. So again, it's just, we're actually willing to ask the questions now rather than default Right, right. Was yeah. That's where I think the difference is. We're gonna we yeah. Better, yeah. That's a, that's a perfect point. That is the difference, right? Is you're getting these other advantages. It's the same thing for you as an individual. Like I miss going into the office, but I have all these other perks, and they're great. And I don't want to give them up now. You know, I'm not moving back to New York City after now being in a place twice the size for the same price. Like I don't want to do that. You know. So that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, what Jason pointed out, because, you know, I always find it interesting to talk to him because he's got just such a good pulse on what's happening in Silicon Valley. And it's obviously kind of a mess out there now. Um, but he said what he's seeing happen now uh, is that VPs of sales are actually getting hired uh, without living in the Bay, with, yeah, without living yeah, in the Bay exactly. Area. Yeah. And once that happens, you're not going to then in six months tell them they have to move to San nope. Francisco, right? So that's why the change is, it's done. It's, 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 yep. it's permanent. Um, and I think it's good for us. Like, I think this would have slowly, all I think that happened is COVID just sped everything up. This probably would have happened really slowly and gradually really over. Slowly. Really, really slowly. Really yeah. slowly. Yes, yeah. your innovators, or innovators were doing it before COVID. 
Yeah. Some of your early adopters were starting to dip their foot in, but I believe the majority of the people were late adopters and laggards because we're just so, this, we're so culturally rooted in what we believe. Change just does, we just don't like to, too many of us don't like to change, especially in well, corporate America. You know, people, people are hesitant to take risks. Like you're building a business, you're building a startup, whatever. You've got this ARR goal you got to hit. Like, is what you want to be the theme of your year transitioning to remote and taking on all those headaches? Like nobody wanted to just say, all right, this year we're going to change the whole frigging company. Like it just was never a priority, but then we were forced to do it. And then people were like, oh shit, this is not that bad. Right. We can, uh, you know, we can actually function this way. And, you know, I know my last company, they're like, wow, we could stop paying rent. Our lease just expired during this, this whole break. And should we renew it? They're like, Nah, fuck it. We're a remote team now. And, yep. you know, so, yep. so now they're not spending that money. And, and so, you know, that's, yep. that's the stuff that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think there'll be a reset. And then I think there'll be a reset because I think the office spaces will get very affordable. And then there may be like a push to people going back to them maybe um, because they'll just be so cheap, but maybe the people who dreamed of that. There's going to have to be a reason. What is the, what is the productivity gain by putting everybody back in the office? No, I'm yeah, I don't know. Cause I don't know what the loss is just yet. I don't know what the productivity loss is. I don't think there's been there enough time. In most cases, I don't think there is one. Right. Probably. So, yeah. But, but, but keep in mind, there's been very little hiring and scaling of teams going on through last year. And that's where I think the challenges are. I think, you know, going remote was easy for us at Aircall. We, we literally, all of our tools were in the cloud. Everyone just had to grab their laptop and their headset and boom, we just put some Zoom meetings on the calendar and we were kind of done. But like, it's not that same scenario for everybody. No, no, I look, I think some people will. I might, what my point was, people can now ask the question. It's, I guess yeah. I, I'm, I'm going back to the same thing I've been saying before. It should prevent us from defaulting. Right, right. right? So even the prices go down, I would like to think, oh, the prices are down, now let's go. That's a default, right? The price has gone down and we've been struggling with these issues, but it wasn't worth to pay this. But now that this, I think it might be worth it for these reasons for this group. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but it, it, yeah. it should be decision motivated, not just a default. Makes sense. So the, the one of the bigger downsides that I see that I'm not sure how we make up for that yet. I, I mean, gong and chorus is obviously huge, right? They were, they were cool last year. They're must-haves now. Yep. The thing that we're missing, and I don't know that gong or chorus will actually make up for it. They can, yep. but I don't think it'll come to the same extent. It's just that concept of just being able to overhear everyone on the phones next to you to reach over and ask a question. Like I know when I was new in sales, I learned so much from just hearing what was happening in the office. And now that's gone, unless you're seeking it out and going on gong or chorus and listening to those calls. Do you think there's room for like, I don't know, some sort of tech or is there some sort of improvement that we'll see or that you know of maybe that, uh, I don't know, makes that type of stuff easier remotely? I mean, not that I've seen. I mean, what you're talking about is that whole idea that I don't know what I don't know. I heard you say something, so I'm going to listen, you know? I don't know how you anticipate that. I don't know how yeah, you or you're on a live call though, right? Like this oh, is yeah. live call. You're just like you're muting your phone, and you're like, wait, what do I say to this objection? What do Connect I say? Like sell. Connect and Sell does that. What is it? what are you saying? Connect and Sell does that. They they have a call. They have a, a it's a dialer, and part of it is I can sit and listen, and I can put it in whisper mode. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Right. But what I mean, yeah, I mean AirCall does that. They all do that. But what I mean is like. When you're on those live calls on a sales floor, hundred people out there, 
like people are constantly just tapping each other on the shoulders, asking questions while their clients on mute or something like you lose that element. And what I don't know is like, what's the impact of that? I don't know. You know, it probably slows up people's learning. I think a little bit like it, it just kind of has to, you know, you don't have those, those lunch conversations about your objections and just all that little stuff that adds up. Yeah. I think that stuff gets, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yep. That stuff adds up. But I guess to your point, like, if the if the benefits outweigh the cons, then it is what it is. And yeah, at this look, point, find stuff that will that, if if there's real value in that, people will go, or, will organically make it happen. Yeah. Some someone will call someone up and say, "Dude, let's meet every day at this time, drink a beer, or get on Slack." But if it's organic, it's a value. If it has value and the teams want it, they'll organically figure it out. Yeah, I agree. Do. That's I think that's what's been happening. So, would you say that like? what it takes, you know, the, the, the profile of what it takes to be successful SDR or AE has somewhat changed. Is it no. a different person? Nope. Nope. I, I, it's funny. I keep thinking we, every seems like since I was selling and after that and after that, everybody wants to see, see is like the profile change. And I don't think the profiles changed at all. We just want it to change, right? Like, and sometimes we think it's changed. We hire for that, but that's not what the profile should, should be. It's what you want it to be. And you're yeah. really hiring people that can't sell. It's <laughs> yeah. really simple, man. I talk about it in my books. So I'm not going to spend too much time on it. It's really simple. The profile of a good salesperson is someone with a major drive. So they have to, I mean, look, they don't do the work. They don't eat. So, I mean, you need drive to be successful in anything, but because this one's so results oriented, you got to have amazing drive, um, amazing ability to learn. So a lifelong learner or what I call a, a deliberate learner, deliberate learners are different than lifelong learners, lifelong learners be like, oh, that would be good to learn. That'd be nice to learn. Deliberate learners to self-assess and say, oh shit, I suck at this. I'm yep. going to go learn that, right? Yep. Deliberate, yeah. Very deliberate in what they're learning because they're trying to shorten the time to wherever they want to get. And then the last piece is the ability to influence, right? Like just the ability to influence people and influence decisions with, I don't mean manipulate, I mean influence. And that's very different. At the end of that's all you need. SDR, BDR, AE, I don't give a shit. It's all the same. I love it. I love it. We've got four minutes left. What advice do you have for people prospecting through 2021? What do you think needs to change? Are there any new trends? Is there, is there a new way to stand out in 2021? Um, I've got some thoughts on it, but I'm curious from you. You know, I, I feel like at least on a yearly basis, people need to kind of just keep pushing and changing it up a little bit because prospecting, it just becomes noise when it stays the same. And my fear right now is that like sales loft and outreach have almost created too much noise. They've made it too easy to run this, this play. Uh, and I think it needs to change. I just don't think it has the same effect. What, what do you think? Do you think there's absolutely something I new think, coming down the pipe? Something new. I mean, as far as tools are concerned, I'm sure something's going to come out. I mean, it always does. If I, I, I don't I, necessarily mean tools. I, I mean, strategy approach. Like I actually think that we have technology saturation right now in sales. I think that we've implemented too much tech and it's time for sort of a course correction where what, what has happened, I think, is that we've implemented all of this technology, right? Aaron Ross, those, that decade sort of landed on like this process, this model, and then all the solutions came in place to try to make it easier and automate it. And now there's just too much of it. And I think too many salespeople have just come in and learned how to sell with those tools. They didn't learn before the tools. Yep. And so they're just missing so much of the human aspect of yep. selling. Yep. And I think what needs to happen for people to be successful in 2021 is that we need a correction. You need to go back to selling human first and then figure out how the technology can make that process easier for you. But don't start with the technology and figure out how to make it more human with yep. that word personalized, which I fucking hate hearing. Like, 
you don't need to personalize something if you're being a person. You only need to do that if you're being a robot. So if you start with being a person and then figure out how to let the tech be supplemental to that, I think you can be successful. Um, I guess I answered my own question, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, look, mine is going to be right consistent with gap selling. I have... it, it's almost comical, and I'm going to sound like a douchebag saying this, and I will take almost the challenge with anybody. Give me, give me a Sandler, a trainer, give me a force market, uh, force management consultant, give me a Miller Hyman, give me anybody, and about 99% of you will still make the same mistake everybody's been making for years. Nobody knows how to problem-centric sell. They all focus on their products. Even when they say they're focusing on the problem, they're not focusing on the problem because they don't know how to diagnose. They don't know what questions to ask. They don't know how to get the buyer to share what's happening inside their organization so that they can accurately assess if a problem exists that needs to be addressed. They just don't know how to do it. And so because they don't know how to do it, they don't bring any value to the buyers. So when you went to buy your car, I don't know how this guy did it, but whatever he did to make you feel comfortable is great. But everybody, when they're engaging and making a change, they want to learn. They want to learn something. And if they're not learning something, then there's no interest because what value to bring as a salesperson. So one of the things that I do with, with gap selling and what we teach them is we are so good. Gap selling is so good at getting the buyer to learn more about themselves than they realized when they made the call, accepted the call, or engaged with us. They're like, oh my God, great question. Oh my God, didn't think of that. Hadn't processed that. Hadn't considered that. And so when you get the buyer there, then the buyer says, wow, I can't stay here. This is untenable. I need to change. Mm -hmm. Now we can have a human-human conversation. Now we can talk about how I can fix you. Now I can talk about my product. And very, very few people know how to do that. And so we're just on the hamster wheel, trying to just change the wheel and the motion and the spokes and no one's stopping and saying, hey man, stop doing this. Learn to uncover the buyer's problems and the impact they're having and get the buyer to see their current state world in a different light. Yeah, as you talk through that, I almost think my car salesman read your book. Like, uh, Like it's exactly what he did because again, I went in there, I was interested in test driving it, but it didn't have all the features and configurations I wanted. I figured I'll order, you know, custom if I'm going to spend the money. But he asked all of the right questions to get me to realize that that actually wasn't the easier or better option, right? He asked me, have you, he goes, he goes by chance, have you, have you looked at uh, the rental prices up and down the road, you know? And he goes, you know, when, just so you know, when you custom order, um, the price that you'll pay is actually determined at the car time the car arrives, right? It's based on, you know, he asks all these different questions yep. to get me to realize shit that I didn't realize. Yep. And then I'm sitting here now, I'm thinking like, wow, like he just made the alternative feel like a real pain in the ass because he just shared information with me through asking questions, yep. right? Of things that I didn't think about. Yes. Um, yes. And that's what it was. Yes. That's what it was. And, and by the end of that, you know, four hours or five hours in that dealership, it felt a heck of a lot easier. And he wore me down too, not in a bad way, like just asking all of the right questions, keeping me there uh, and eventually got me to a place where I agreed that if the price was right, I would take the car that was there. Uh, and he made me a few offers. You know, he anchored high a, a couple times and I, and I said, no, no. I said, I said, it's not no, it's just that I would need to go get some other quotes before I could just buy that. 
And he goes, well, is there a price that you would buy it at? And I was like, well, that's the fucking question I've been waiting for him to ask me. Right. And so then I teed it up. I'm like, look, I don't want to insult you. Like, honestly, like I just haven't shopped around enough. Like the price I would give you today is, is too low. I don't want to insult you. He goes, no, throw it at me. It's ex- again, exactly what I wanted him to say. And then I throw the low ball offer and I say again, like, you know, if you can't accept it, I understand. And of course, let me go talk to my manager and he comes yeah, back yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. They love to talk to the manager thing. They still do it, by the way. It's great. But, um, but yeah, good stuff, man. We're, we're ending, wrapping up here just on time. Um, what do you want to plug? I mean, gap, se- gap selling, everyone buy the book. If you don't already have it, I'd be shocked if people listening don't have it, but, but get it. Um, what else is going on, man? What, what, are you, uh, what are you working on? Where can people find you? All that good stuff. If you can't find me, you're not trying. So, Keen, you look, you run Keenan with all the famous Keenans. I'm amazed they still show up on the first page. I was going to say with one name, like I actually wanted to ask you all about your choice to do that. I don't know if you have a few more minutes, but I'm curious from a branding standpoint, if there was a big strategy there, or if it was just a, a small decision that uh, it was a, it was a, it wasn't a big strategy. It was a big aha. So, you know, a couple of things happened where I'm, I was like, oh, you know what? I need to wear my red plaid shirts that were all the time. And so I got my own shirts and I got my own shirts. I do my own t-shirt on my red plaid shirt. I just got my own. Yep, smart man. <laughs> smart man. Um, I said, I'm not wearing anyone else's logo anymore. What's the point of that? Exactly. So that and my red shirts um, and you spend my red suede Pumas with fat laces. A shout out to back to the eighties, the but oh, you know, I missed the Pumas anymore. But, um, and then uh, when I got on uh, social is really a lot of it had to do with getting on social. And um, I got on, Twitter and got my last name on Twitter and that was Keenan. And oh, okay. so then I'm like, wait a minute, I need to keep doing this. And then, so then I realized, then I realized how it was going and my friends all called me Keenan anyways. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's here. So it was like, it was a, aha, but then, Ooh, it's, Ooh, this could work. So the only downside is it's been really hard to keep getting Keenan all the social networks. If I'm not early. I, I, I lose yep. that. That's yeah. Okay. I actually had the chance to get at uh, Cadmus on clubhouse and I just decided not to do it because all my other ones are at Colin Cadmus. And yeah, I'm like, stay consistent. Yeah. yeah. The one nice thing about my name so far, knock on wood, is every time a social platform comes out, like my name's available. So yeah, yeah. it's Keenan been, it's been nice. Keenan goes yeah. pretty fast. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, good stuff, man. It, it was great to finally chat and, and, and get to know you face to face. Everybody go to where, where you're selling the book on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Go to Amazon. Get gap selling. If you don't already have it, get it. Stay healthy out there. All right, man. Thanks, baby. All right, we'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Colin Cadmus podcast. This episode was brought to you by Lessonly. Check out Lessonly.com. That's L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. This episode was also brought to you by Spiff. Check out Spiff.com forward slash Colin. Please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 